Abundance of love, abundance of grace. Now to that cross, you took my place. Oh God, you paid my ransom. My ransom. Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church. Loving God, loving people. Now, here's Pastor Scott. We are going to be looking at six verses this morning out of John chapter 14. I want you to open your heart, open your mind, and open your ears to receive what the Lord has to say to you this morning. In John chapter 14, verse 1 says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. No, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I want to speak to you this morning from a sermon titled, Do You Know the Way? This is the most important question that you can ever deal with. You need to know the way. Look at somebody say, you need to know it. Pray with me. God, thank you for showing us the way. God, I pray today you'd reveal yourself to us through your word. Father, I pray that you guide us by your spirit. Teach us what you'd have us to know. Lord, I thank you for letting us come together in your name. And I pray that you would accomplish your will. We love you and we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. I love this chapter in the Gospel of John. It is a, it is a great section of scripture. We talked a little bit Wednesday night about Bibles that are called by publishers red letter edition Bibles and they take the words that Jesus spoke out of his mouth and they put them in our Bible in red letters contrasted to all the other words that are in black letters. There was a time in my life where I was really opposed to red letter Bibles and I'm less opposed to them now. The reason I was opposed to them is because it gave people a false premise that the words in red had greater significance than the words in black. Y'all not following me. The words in the Bible are all significant on the same level because the Bible says that all these words were breathed out of God's mouth to us, whether through the mouth of his son Jesus Christ specifically or through other people he inspired to speak to us. But if you have a red-letter version of the Bible and you turn and you look in this section the this, this part of the Gospel of John, 14 and 15, chapters 14 and 15, you see a lot of red letters. There's a lot of what Jesus has to say to us out of his mouth. And I want us to look at these six verses this morning in way of Bible study. I'm going to just take these verses and go through them phrase by phrase and try to pull some things out for us that we can think about this morning that I believe will help us be and to do all that God has called us to be and to do. Let's look at verse 1. Together, Jesus is talking to a group of his followers, and he said, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God 
and trust also in me. I've been teaching Bible study technique for a lot of years. And if you follow my Bible study journal plan, you understand that when you read the Scripture, you have to do a lot of different things. Number one, you have to pay attention to the punctuation. Take the Bible in bite-sized pieces so that you can digest it. But as you look at these bite-sized pieces, you should be looking specifically for several different things. One of the things you should be looking for is commands. There's lots of commands in the Bible. Now, some people talk about the Ten Commandments, and certainly there are those. You can go to any Christian bookstore in America and find a lot of different books that deal with the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, when, and they all have that book somewhere, even though there are a lot more commandments than that. But I teach that when you study the Bible, you should look for commands, you should look for promises, and you should look for questions of things that you don't understand so you can do further research. This morning, as we look at this first verse of Scripture, I want us to take it apart verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and I want us to notice the commands. See, in this verse, I see three commands and one reality. Say three. Say one. I'm trying to get you awake this morning. Three commands and one reality. Let's look at the command. See, when Jesus is talking and he's giving instruction, the things that he is saying, he does not intend to be optional. It's like when your mama says, wash your hands before you come to the table. That's not just good hy hygiene advice. That's a command from your mother's mouth to you. So Jesus is not just giving good advice here. He's giving commands to his followers. Now, if you love the person who's telling you what to do, then you have a greater chance of doing it. Jesus said that you shouldn't even call me Lord if you're not willing to do the things that I say. If you really love somebody and they tell you what to do, it's, it's easy for you to do it. And Jesus is giving instructions. He's giving commandments to the people that profess to love him. And he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, one of the things I talk a lot about, and it helps me when I study the Bible, and I know it will help you when you study the Bible, is this principle or this understanding of the things that are inferred or what theologians call the inference principle things that are inferred it's like when your father says boy if you don't put that down that's not even a complete thought that's not even a proper uh expression of what he's trying to convey if you just look at the literal words boy if you don't put that down what well, dad, if you know dad, doesn't have to say what because he inferred with his tone. He inferred with the words that he used what. And the people that know him know what the what is. And it's time for us who follow God to know what's the what. I hope you know what's the what. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, the inference here is... Not spoken, it's inferred. When he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, what is he inferring? Good. That your hearts can be troubled. If I had a trouble-o-meter today, and I could start with Mr. C, hang it around your neck, and just put it on each person uh, one by one throughout the whole church, all the way back to Amber, I would love to see where you register on the troubled heart-o-meter. Are, are, are you calm and relaxed? Or are you freaking out and barely holding it together? 
the expression on your face and the demeanor you walk into a church with typically are not always what's going on on the inside. I, I love the church skit video that shows real church folk, and we, we keep it real at Abundant Life because faking, faking out people means nothing. Realizing you can't fake out God means everything. But those church skits where you see that family, the mom, the dad, and the kids driving to church, screaming, hollering, cussing at each other, angry, mad, and then they pull in the church parking lot, slam it in park, and say, everybody get your face right, smile, and act like you love God. Hopefully it's not that drastic, but there is a posture adjustment for people who come into church. There is this, this, this adjustment where people come in and try to pretend like their heart is not troubled. You might be able to fool the people that are sitting around you about where you're at on your troubled heart meter but God knows. And I want you to consider today what God sees regarding how troubled your heart is. See, he doesn't say how much to let your heart be troubled. He doesn't infer that there's a decent amount of stress, worry, and anxiety that's okay, and then there's a tipping point where it becomes not okay. He just says plainly, don't let your hearts be troubled, period, at all. Don't let your heart. He's saying, I know that some of y'all out there have heavy hearts. I know some of you are worried. I know some of you are, are fearful on the inside of what's going on. And I can promise you, in a room uh, with this many people in it, there are people in this room who have troubled hearts. There are people in this room who have severely troubled hearts. And there are people in this room who aren't even uh, awake fully yet to know what a troubled heart I'm talking about. Takes all kinds. See, the thing that I hope when we come to church is that we'll be honest enough with ourselves about where we really are. My kids want to come in my bathroom all the time and weigh themselves. And I'm thinking, it ain't changed much since an hour ago, seriously. But come on in. If you ever get serious about wanting to know how much you're progressing in your weight gain or your weight loss, you're going to know exactly where you are, and you're going to be very honest about where you are. And I wish that most Christians would give that level of interest in their own spirituality. We need to be honest about where we are. Jesus is commanding us. The first command I see in this verse is to not let your heart be troubled. He's not giving advice. He's giving a command. Amy Grant sang a great song in the early 80s, a lot of them. And a phrase in this song that I'm talking about asks, do you have a heavy heart because you try to play a part of a life that you don't know and now it's scaring you? Because you're saying all the right words that no one's ever heard, but a voice that's crying out inside your heart. See, you might be troubled because you might be coming face to face with the reality that maybe you don't know this thing the way you hope other people think you know this thing. And I want us all to get to the place where we realize God is the only judge. 
God's judgment is the only judgment that matters. Not the preacher's judgment, not the people around you's judgment. God knows the truth, and we need to let the truth be our reality. See, when you let a false narrative be your reality, then all your premise of hope to understand that situation is skewed because you're starting from a false position. And we need to be real. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. That's, that's a command right there. And that's enough truth for you and me to live on this week. Don't let your heart be troubled. Now, a great question would be, well, what am I supposed to do about it? I'm freaking out. I, I got issues going on. Well, God gives the remedy in his word, and there's lots of different things you can do. He told us in the book of Philippians not to worry about anything but to pray about everything. So there, there's counterbalances to uh, how to fit into what God is commanding you to do. I said there's three commands in this verse. The first one is Jesus commands us not to let our hearts be troubled. He said, trust in God, comma. Always pay attention to the punctuation. Check that phrase out. See what it means. See what it's saying. See how you can apply the truth of God's word to your life. Trust in God. That's a phrase that stands alone. That's a command that the Lord is giving. Jesus, if he was here today, I've had people say, well, if Jesus was here in the flesh today, what do you think he would say to us? Well, I know exactly what he would say to us. He would say to us now what he was saying to the people then because he never changes. So even as 2,000 years ago, he spoke out of his mouth to the people following him, trust in God. He would tell us the same thing today. Trust in God. People are pulled, tugged, pressed to do everything other than what God wants us to do. The world wants to unbalance us and unsettle us from doing what God has called us to do because in obedience to God's word is where the blessing resides. Only as we obey God's word can we walk in his blessing. So many times people do the exact opposite of what God commands us to do. He said, Jesus said, trust in God. Well, there's a lot of different things people put their trust in today. There are people who put trust in money. People put trust in power. People put trust in uh, politics. People put trust in their intellect. But Jesus says succinctly here in verse 1, trust in God. If you want to write a message to yourself, if you want to put some word on an index card or write it on your mirror, that's three good words to write. Trust in God. If you don't hear anything else I say, get this today. Trust in God. Tell yourself that constantly. It's going to help regulate your mind. Trust in God. Not in what you see. Now, it, it's amazing to me. It is amazing to me to watch people freaking out over politics politics are cyclical politics are going to change if you like the current guy that's in office right now i'm pretty sure you didn't like the last guy that was in office and if you like the last guy that was in office i am certain you do not like the guy that's in office now and but the guy that's in office now ain't gonna be in office forever even though Washington, D.C. has voted to make a notorious crack addict and multiple DUI 
uh, felon, the mayor forever of Washington, D.C., with the unveiling of the eight-foot statue this week of the felonious Mayor Marion Barry, the Washington, D.C. mayor forever, who, after serving prison time for his last felony, got out and within a month went right back into running for mayor of D.C. and won again. We needs us a crack addict in D.C. We gots to have Marion Barry because he smokes that good crack. People, I've been reading all week long about the trust people have in Washington, D.C. that Marion Barry is the man for the people. And I'm thinking, okay, so here's what we got. We got this half-million-dollar statue that the taxpayers just paid to build an eight-foot. Who is eight-foot tall? Okay, that's one. But to build this, this eight-foot-tall statue to a person, and, and the, the people just lauding him with, 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 with great approval. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, anybody else is, is perfect because nobody's perfect. And that's what I'm saying. If you drink, you shouldn't look down on people to smoke. If you smoke, you shouldn't look down on people to drink. If you, if, if you, if you don't drink, you don't smoke, but you don't read your Bible every day, you shouldn't. I mean, everybody's doing something wrong. That's why we need to leave judgment up to God. Uh, but if there's one person in the world that you can put your trust in and it makes sense, that person is God. See, there's a lot of people that trust in Donald Trump. That don't make any sense. There's a lot of people that trusted in President Obama. That didn't make any sense. There are a lot of people that trusted in the, the, the Bush boys and, and, and the dude between the Bushes, Clinton. Uh, and, and none of that made any. These are human beings that are flawed. And they're going to come and they're going to go. And if you allow your heart to be wrestled up and twisted up by a media who's just painting it falsely anyway, and it's so funny because the people that watch Fox News, well, they will just tell you, it's the only real news, Fox News. And the people that watch CNN will tell you the same thing. Fox News is lying, CNN telling the truth. And uh, back and forth and back and forth and back. And it's like, well, I trust CNN News. Well, I trust, and, and I'm like, these are not really trustable things because they are all manipulating us the way they want us to be manipulated. The thing that is trustable is the command that Jesus gives us to trust in God. So first command, don't let your heart be troubled. Second command, trust in God. That should be easy for a believer. Now, if you're not a true born-again believer, then maybe you have some questions about God. Maybe you haven't fully settled in your mind the reality of God. But this commandment is to people who claim the name of Jesus Christ. So, first commandment, don't let your heart be troubled. Second commandment, trust in God. Third commandment, Jesus said, trust also in me. Okay, so now we see two people that we're commanded to trust in this verse. God and Jesus. And I want you to know that's enough. That's enough. If you put your trust in people, people will let you down. The Bible said it is foolish to trust in a human being. 
Doesn't matter how great they are. Doesn't matter whether it's the president, the mayor of D.C., or your favorite pastor. All these people are flawed. We're all failed human beings, and we will let each other down. But I come to tell you good news today. If you put your trust in God and in his son, Jesus Christ, they will never let you down. Never let you down. So these are the three commands that I see. But I told you I see three commands and one reality. Now, when, as Jesus is talking, he's talking to a group of followers here in John 14, 1. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. So either he means that each person has more than one heart. Or he means that as a mass of people, you have one heart that makes up a collective group of hearts. Now, I hope you realize he's not insinuating that, uh, Deacon West, you got nine hearts in your chest. Don't let all of them be troubled at one time. No, when he says your hearts, it's plural. Because Henry has a heart, Nixa has a heart, Nancy has a heart, Jimmy has a heart. It's all these different hearts. He's saying all y'all have hearts. Don't let them be troubled. Now, here is the reality that I want you to get. The reality is we are each commanded how we are to deal with our own heart. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. That's the whole group. But when you look at it as an individual, you can only work toward not letting your heart. You work toward not letting your heart. We each are responsible for ourselves. Oh, this would be great news if people would understand personal accountability. This would be great news. See, we wouldn't need new laws to try to protect and prevent things from happening if everybody took responsibility for their own self. If everybody realized that, that uh, we all have to answer for ourselves, it would change the world. But when you stand before God, there's only going to be one person that he's going to hold you accountable for ultimately, and that's yourself. So, of course, if you're married, you don't want your spouse to have a troubled heart. If you're a parent, you don't want your children to have a heavy heart. If you're a child, you don't want your parents to have a heavy heart. But the reality that Jesus is teaching here is personal responsibility for you. I wonder how much time you spend working on you. It's just a weird thing in the human psyche, and this is why people do so much jacked-up stuff, because the brain doesn't always function in a rational, linear process. It, it's as if we see somebody else doing bad. Do you know there are people in the world that if they see you doing bad, that makes them feel better about their self? Well, you know, at least I ain't struggling like that. <laughs> he, the, and that, but, you know, it doesn't matter how bad that person's doing. Doesn't really change where you are. Doesn't put any more money in your bank account. Doesn't gain you any, any power with God. We have a one, everyone in this room has a one-to-one -one relationship with God. You are responsible to God for how you deal with your own heart. Everybody gets caught up. Well, man, people hear messages and think, mm, I wish my children had been here to hear that. That was for you. Oh, Lord, I wish my ex would have been here to hear. That was for you. Stop shape-shifting. Stop blaming. Stop pushing it off. That, that, that craziness is as old as day one. When Adam and Eve, there were two people in the whole world, and they both blamed other folks. 
multiple ways. There are two people in the whole world. God said, don't eat of this one particular tree. They do. Man, it's like telling a kid, I'm going to the store. Don't touch them cakes out of them cookies I just made. That's almost like, you know, as a kid, it's like, they're daring me to. I mean, are they, just, are they just begging me? But God said, don't do that one thing. And then when they did that one thing and they get caught, y'all remember what Adam said? That woman. First words out of his mouth, that woman. Yeah, it was her for sure. It's what the Bible says. But he was in it too. He said, that woman. And then he knew right away, because see, Adam had a relationship with God that was unimpeded. He had a free-flowing relationship with God. When you know how you deal with somebody you're close to, and you start telling something full, silly out of your mouth, you see the look in there, oh, he ain't buying it. Adam says, that woman. And then he goes. So he knew that wasn't going to go. And he said, that you gave me. He knew God wasn't going to let him put the blame on the woman. But this dude ain't going to take the blame for himself. Because why? He's a human being. And why should we take the blame when we can blame all the other people? Why, why should, why should uh, Democrats take the blame when they can blame Republicans? Why should Republicans take the blame when they can blame Democrats? Why, why should Planned Parenthood take the blame when they can blame the NRA? Why should the NRA take the blame when they can blame the... I mean, it's just always this constant shifting of all the blame. If you ever get to the place in your life where you understand God is the only judge and you are accountable to him alone. Don't let your heart, the reality is, you got one heart that you have to answer for. So how are you doing? How are you doing? How troubled is your heart? If it's troubled, you need to untrouble it. And the best way to do that is to spend more time with God. Look in verse 2. Jesus said, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, I would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. So Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, asks a rhetorical question. Rhetorical question is a question that doesn't necessarily need an answer because the answer is too obvious to even answer the question. That's like when mom says, do you want me to slap you till your eyeballs fall out? And the little kid's thinking, well, that could be fun. Yeah, let's, let's roll with that. I never saw an eyeball roll out. Here's a tip. If your mama hits you so hard that your eyeball rolls out, you won't see it. We're thinking people. So he asked this rhetorical question at the end, but let's start with the beginning of the verse first. He says, there is more than enough room in my father's home. I see so much inferred there. Now, you've got to be careful with the principle of inference because you can take things further than they're intended to go. But as I look at that, I'm thinking, well, if you got a house big enough, see, he's talking about his father's home. If you have a home big enough where there's more than enough room, it's just either massively huge or you know how many people are coming or something together around that. Now, if someone says, uh, you know, Pastor Scott, you're going to be traveling through with your two sons. Come on, stay with us. There's more than enough room in our home. 
Well, they say that because they know it's me and two kids. Now, if they didn't know I was traveling with the whole church and they said it's more than enough room and they got 1,800 square foot, three-bedroom, two-bath house, they just lost out because we just took over and there ain't no room to be had. See, God knows exactly how many people are coming. Jesus knows exactly how many people are coming, and he knows how big God's house is. I, I want to take this, and I want you to see where in this translation, which is the New Living Translation, there, Jesus said there's more than enough room in my Father's home. In a more traditional translation, the King James Version says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And this phrase, because you pay attention to the punctuation, stop at the colon, in my Father's house are many mansions. This one little phrase has given way to some of the worst theology in the world. This one little phrase has given way to more bad thinking about heaven uh, than, than, you, than is, is even conceivable. Because a lot of people think they're going to have a mansion in heaven. Because this translation says, many mansions, and I got me one. And I've heard people say, I don't care if I got the smallest mansion on Hallelujah Boulevard, just as long as I get in. And that's, just, that's human thinking that doesn't line up with the real truth about what Jesus is teaching here. God has a house, and inside that house, that word mansion is a Greek word that means place to dwell. It's, it's a room. You have a bedroom, that's, that's, that's where you dwell at night. Uh, there's probably other bedrooms in your house, but people think that somebody's going to have a mansion on Hallelujah Boulevard. Somebody's going to have a tinier mansion, barely even qualify for the word mansion, shack over off the back, I just snuck in Boulevard. There's no truth to that. That's not what Jesus is saying. God has a home, and inside of God's house, there's lots of different rooms. Now, here's the deal. If you love God, you'd rather have a room in his house than a big mansion down the block and around the corner. Are you following me? Don't aspire to have your mansion. Aspire to be where God is. And so Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. In, in, in my Father's home, there's many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's like, I'm not leading you wrong. God has got enough room for everybody. There's lots of room in his house. And in the last sentence of verse 2, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And I want you to think about that with me this morning. This thing that Jesus said to his followers over 2,000 or about 2,000 years ago. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, where is this place? Anybody want to take a shot? Heaven? It's in God's what? House. Jesus is preparing a place for us in God's house. So we know where he is and we know what he's doing. He's in heaven, a.k.a. God's house. And what is he doing? He's preparing a place for us. Now, that phrase is giving way to lots of bad theology because preachers like to be dramatic and make points that don't exist. I heard one preacher say, the average house builder 
can build a decent home in six to nine months. And that's true. And, and then, they, then they follow on the end of that, and, and the Lord's been building my house for 2,000 years. I got a bad house. And just talk about how great their house is because Jesus has been building it for two. It don't take Jesus 2,000 years. He created the whole earth with, 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 with words. So it, it wouldn't take him that long. But that is what he's doing. You ought to know, if you call yourself a Christian, you ought to know where Jesus is, and you ought to know what he's doing. And this verse tells us exactly where he is, and it tells us exactly what he's doing. He's with the Father, preparing a place for those who follow him. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. He didn't say, I go to prepare a place for them. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And you have to read with comprehension. You have to understand the context in which he's speaking. He's speaking to his followers. He's speaking to Christians. He's saying, I'm preparing a place for you whose hearts are untroubled, for you who follow me. I'm preparing a place for you. He is not preparing a place in his father's home for everyone. That's why he knows there's more than enough room. Because he's got the guest list. He has a book in heaven where the names of everyone who will spend eternity in heaven are already written down and recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so he knows exactly how many people are coming, and there's no reason. See, if we're preparing for 100 people, or like last Sunday night, uh, we had new members class, and we were preparing for, uh, I think, 12, 15 people showed up. But when we were preparing for 12 people, 15 people showed up. It wasn't a problem food-wise because when we prepare for 12, we actually prepare for 20. We add, we add a little extra. Why? Because we don't really know exactly how many people are going to show up. Is it hot in here to anybody but me? Turn the heat off, somebody. I'm about to faint up in here. We don't know exactly how many people are coming. If you're, if you're making dinner and you know exactly how many people are coming, you know how many pieces of chicken to make. One for you, three for me. I could have said four, but I'm trying to be reasonable. You know how many pieces of garlic bread to make. One for you, three for me. I could have said four, but I'm trying to be reasonable. You know exactly how many, but if you don't know how many people are showing up, you don't know how much preparing to do. I have good news for you and bad news for you. The good news is Jesus already knows exactly how many people are going to spend eternity in heaven. That's the good news. He knows if, if you're going to be there. The bad news is he knows the ones who aren't going to be there. So my question to you today is, do you plan on being in this house? Do you plan on living do, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe the words of his mouth? Do you believe that he is in heaven where God dwells, preparing a place for his followers? And do you count yourself in that group? Look at verse 3. He said, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Now, without reading into that, without helping you, without coaching you, I want to ask you uh, Simple question. You look at the verse and consider this question. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? It's not ready. 
everything is not ready. Which makes me think, what's he holding up on? Well, we got a back order on plywood? I mean, you need extra hand to salsa? I mean, what is the hold up? 2,000 plus years, you've been up there trying to get stuff ready, and everything still is not ready? Why? And it's the same reason so often seen in Scripture. Because of the great love God has for humanity. It's not that the house ain't ready. That's ready. It, 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 it's not that, you know, well, we got, we got the plumbing roughed in and we got the shell up, but we, got, we went back ordered on sheetrock. No, it's not that. There are people still yet to come. This is the great love God has for human beings. There are people who have not yet made a life-changing decision for Jesus. I'm not talking about being a good person. I'm not talking about being involved in your church. I'm talking about being supernaturally born again so you can get into heaven. I'm talking about having a real relationship. When everything is ready. Now, I've been studying this whole Second return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. The, the, I, I, I've been studying this whole his return coming back to get us for a long time. And the Bible says that one day that the archangel is going to blow a trumpet. And that God's going to gather together all his followers. And that's going to be a wrap. And then we're going to enter into eternity. We're going to go to heaven. Every event that has to happen to lead up to the Lord coming back, has already happened. There's nothing left that needs to be happened. I've met people who claim to be theologians who aren't really scholars that said that in 1948 when Israel reconstituted itself as a nation, that that was the final thing on God's calendar um, of eschatology to prepare the way for the Lord to come back. But that's not true. That had to happen. That had to happen because God said it would happen before the end of time that he would gather his people back together in his nation. And so there's no way that the second coming could have happened. There's no way that this world could have transitioned before Israel coming back to reconstitute as a nation in the 40s. But that wasn't the final straw. The final straw was aloha to Hawaii, Elvis Presley in the 70s. Now, how has Elvis Presley in the 70s got anything to do with God's calendar of eschatology, which is the study of future or final events? Well, because it wasn't until Elvis did a concert in Hawaii that was simulcast around the world at one time. See, the Bible says that when the end of time comes, at the end of time, that there would be two witnesses for God, and that they would die, and they would lay dead in the street for three days, and the whole world would see them. Well, that's not hard for us to imagine. I mean, you can pull up on your phone streaming video right now what's happening in the streets of Jerusalem. But before the 70s, that couldn't happen because there was no simulcast. There was no satellite TV that showed everybody one event at the same time. So it wasn't 
everything's good to go in the 40s, but it's everything's been good to go since the 70s. And this is where people messed up. There was a book, one of the best-selling Christian books in, in, in Christian book history, was a book called 88 Reasons Why the Lord's Coming Back in 1988. Some of you remember that book. And some of the leading voices in eschatology believe because Jesus said that it'd be a generation that saw the beginning of the end events to the end. Generation biblically is 40 years. So people who thought, well, now that Israel's a nation again, 40 years from 1948 is 19. So they thought, 88, we're out. 1988, it's a wrap. It's gone. It's over. We're going to get out of here. But they didn't understand that that wasn't the final event. So you can't use 1948 as your stepping off point for a 40-year advance. But I do believe you can use the 70s as your stepping point forward for 40 years. Uh, now, there's difference in the calendar, so that's a problem because the, the Jewish calendar only had 360 days in it. The Roman calendar has 365 days in it. The, our calendar has 365.25 days in it. So there's, there's this shifting of months and years as time goes by. But let's just say from 1975, 40 years from 1975 would be what? Well, it's real close to that right now. You say, Pastor, do you, are you trying to predict the date? I'm not trying to predict the date. I, I, the Bible says nobody knows exactly when that date will be, but I do know this for sure. Every prophecy has already been fulfilled that must be fulfilled to open the door for the beginning of the end. I believe we're near the end of time. I believe that we are at that place of almost ready. And I think the only thing that's not ready is that last person has not yet been saved. I believe that there is one person that is holding this thing up. And if I knew for sure it was you, I'd just hold you underwater till you called on Jesus. Now, obviously, you're not going to circumvent God's will. You're not. Well, I hope it's me. I'll string out all these Christians, keep God from coming back. Uh, no, normal thinking doesn't happen like that. But the truth remains, the time is not yet. Everything's not ready. But one day, everything is going to be ready. And you don't know when that day is going to be. And I don't know when that day is going to be. And one day, everything's going to be ready. The father's going to tell the son, go get all my children. And he's going to come and he's going to get his followers for the purpose of allowing us to always be with him where he is. Now, this was really relevant to the group of people he was speaking to because he was preparing them for his absence. He was telling them that he was going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and die and raise himself from the dead on the third day. And they're freaking out. They're like, we already left everybody we know to follow you. What do you mean you're going? Well, it's, it's over. We, we're just getting started. And he's telling them that he's preparing to leave the planet, but he's letting them know, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. I'm going to go to where my father is. I'm going to prepare a place for everybody who chooses to be saved. And then when everything's ready, 
I will come and get you. Now, the same John that wrote the gospel of John wrote the book of the Revelation. And Jesus gave this revelation to John on the Isle of Patmos, and he showed him many wonderful things that must happen in the future. And after John saw all those things, at, at the end of that book, he comes to the place where he said something profound. In the King James, he said, even so, come quickly. And that's the heart of every real believer. I know things got to be ready. I know God's got a time frame. But I wish he'd come back soon. You should not be so deep-rooted in this earth. Now, I get it. Some of y'all still want to get married. I get it. Some of y'all waiting on a divorce. I get it. Some some of y'all waiting to marry the person you wanted to marry. I I understand. Some some of y'all want to to have a grandchild. Some of y'all, you know, hoping to get out of debt. Listen, if you die in debt, you got the last laugh. Who are they calling now? Mail stacking up. Certified mail. Ain't nobody signing for that. But when that time is right, the Lord is going to come back. And if you love him, you shouldn't be so deep-rooted on this earth that you're like, well, I, I, I hope he delays. We, we don't get to say, but I wonder if you had input. And, and God just asked you today, I can come back today, take you to heaven right now. Or I can wait five, 20, or 50 years. Which would you rather see happen? And some people would just be honest and they'd say, I want to see my kids get married. And with, with, a, with a thought that says, I'm being heaven anyway. I, you know, we'll get there when we get there. And other people would say, man, I'm just ready to see the Lord. Let's go now. Because there's nothing good enough on this earth for us in light of what God has prepared for us. I hope you have a concept of Jesus being with the Father, preparing a place for you to live forever in heaven, knowing that when everything is ready, he is going to come and get you. The Bible says this is the great hope of the church, that one day the Lord is coming back for us. If you go to Savannah, and I recommend that you do for a bunch of different reasons. Number one, it's one of the few beautiful cities that the north didn't burn to the ground. Fact. When, when Sherman stormed through uh, the south and burnt everything to the ground, he liked the way Savannah looked, and he wrote Lincoln a letter, and he said, I find this city too beautiful to burn. I present it as a gift to my president. And so they left a lot of buildings standing in Savannah, and that's why there's a lot of old structures in Savannah. But it's a beautiful place, a lot of history, and there's a statue down on the river of the Waving Girl. Anybody ever been to Savannah and seen the waving girl? All right, the rest of y'all need to go. And she's waving goodbye to her love, a sailor. Savannah was the largest port in America at one time. And she's waving goodbye to a sailor, and she vowed to wait for his return. And she's perpetually standing there because he never came back. See, some of y'all are waiting for events that aren't going to happen. But others are waiting for an event that is sure to happen. And if you believe that you're born again and you trust the story of God's word, you know that Jesus was here. He lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day. And one day he's coming back to take us so we can be where he is.
This is the truth of what God says. He said, I will come and get you. You can trust that. You can trust that. Some people, some of y'all are waiting for somebody to come back into your life. They're gone. They shook free of you and they ain't looking back. But if you're waiting on Jesus to come back, his return is certain. It's promised. It's guaranteed. His return is guaranteed. And the reason that he's coming back, he says, is so that we can always be with him where he is. These are great truths of the word of God. Verse 4, he said, and you know the way to where I'm going, period. Okay, and you know the way to where I'm going. If I said, hey, I'm going to Rufus's house, you know the way. Rufus who? I don't know Rufus. I don't know how to get there. If I said, everybody, let's just go to Deacon West's house for lunch today, you know how to get there. Everybody don't know how to get there. Thank God most don't know how to get there because there wouldn't be enough food there. But Jesus tells his disciples, he said, and you know the way to where I'm going. See, here's the, here's the context you have to understand. They're upset. He's letting them know, I'm leaving. He's their leader. He's preparing them for his absence. But he's trying to comfort them by saying, yes, I am going, but I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to go and I'm going to get everything ready for you so you can have a, a room in God's house and be with me forever. And he said, and you know the way I'm going. And in verse 5, Thomas said, we don't know the way, Lord. I love honest folk. Thomas is honest. A lot of people discredit the apostle Thomas foolishly because he did great work for the Lord. And he made one of the strongest confessions in the entire world about who Jesus is. But because he said that I won't believe y'all saw the Lord until I see him with my own eyes, we put one word in front of his name and he's forever been remembered as what? Doubting Thomas. When the reality is, Thomas said, I won't believe it until I saw it. I don't believe there was doubt in his mind. There was hurt that he wasn't there in his mind. Because when Jesus showed up and said, okay, Thomas, come look at the nail prints in my hands and feet. Come look at the spear mark in my side. Thomas didn't say, okay, hand that over. Let's get some fingerprints here. Uh, uh, let, 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 me get, let me get my DNA kit out. We're going to do some forensic evidence checking on this. No, he didn't ask to do any checking. He instantly declared who the Lord was. Thomas just was that kind of dude that would say what other people were thinking. I like that kind of dude. Or do that. I like that kind of person who is willing to say, somebody's got to say it. Somebody's got to say what is on everybody else's mind. And he knows all the rest of these folks. Here, here's Jesus. All right, I'm going away. And uh, I'm not going to be here anymore. But y'all know where I'm going. Y'all know the way to get there. And they're all looking around like, somebody going to say something to this dude? Somebody going, and, and Thomas said, we, no, we don't know, Lord. Thomas said, we have no idea what in the world you are talking about. We got no clue where you're going. How are we going to know the way? 
What are you saying, Mr. Jesus? You tell us we, you're going to, to heaven and we know, we know the way. We barely know the way to the drugstore. Can't hardly find each other's house. You know the way. You're talking about going to somewhere off this planet and telling us we know how to get there? Maybe looking for some GPS help here. So I don't have no idea where you're going. And I surely don't know. Thomas, just being honest. If you would get honest with yourself about where you are in Christ, you could begin to advance. Because as long as you pretend to be further than you really are, you're never going to move forward. Verse 6, last verse, get this. Jesus told him this. He said, I am the way. Jesus is responding to what Thomas just said. Put verse 5 back on the screen for me. Thomas just said, we have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? We don't know the way. I don't know where you're going, and I don't know the way. The very next thing Jesus said in verse 6, I am the way. And this has been a truth that has comforted Christians for over 2,000 years. The reality that Jesus is the way. He's not a way. He's the way. He, he's, he's, he's not a way. He's the only way. He said, I, I'm the way. But he went further than that, and I love that about the Lord. People would ask him one question, he'd give them two answers. They'd ask him one thing, he'd give them three things. They said, we all know the way. Jesus said, I am the way. Not only that, I am the truth. Not only that, I am the life. See, what he's saying here, and I want you to hear it this way. Because Jesus told them he was going to his father. So he's the way to the father. He said, I am the way. He's talking about the way to where he's going. He's going to the father. So Jesus is the way to the father. But not only is he the way to the father, he's the truth about the father. That's why if you keep reading, and I'm not going to take time today to show you, but if you keep reading, they, Philip says, show us the Father. And he said, you, you see me, you see the Father. I, 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 I'm the truth about who God is. And he says, and I am the life. He's the way to God. He's the truth about God. And he's the life of God lived out visibly for us to see. The Bible says he's the Visible representation of our invisible God. So Jesus is the way to God, the truth about God, and the life of God. And then he says in this last sentence, the most non-inclusive, the most narrow-minded statement in all of theology. For all you snowflakes that want to believe everybody's in your group, everybody ain't in your group. Everybody's not going to live in your neighborhood. Everybody's not going to drive the same car. Everybody's not going to have the same thing. Everybody's not included. Jesus said, no one can come to the Father except through me. If the Lord was alive today dealing with this soft, pansied, weak-backed crowd of folk, they would just freak out. 
well, that just doesn't sound inclusive. And I think we just need to be concerned for where everybody feels. And, and it, it just sounds so narrow-minded. It sounds xenophobic, and it sounds homophobic, and bigophobic, and lickophobic, and dickophobic, and rickophobic, and mickophobic. Uh, how, how many words you want to make up? Jesus said, you can't get there except through me. Well, what about all the good Buddhists? All the good Buddhists going to die and go to hell with the bad Buddhists. Now, I, that, that's humorous to say it that way, but the reality is true nonetheless. Well, what about all the really morally upright good people that just don't believe in Jesus? They're not going to God. I remember one time there was a man named James Robinson. Uh, he was a he was a fiery Baptist preacher. He got really sick. He had a supernatural healing. Got involved in the charismatic church, and he was on the original uh, Oprah Winfrey type show. Anybody know who who started that kind of TV show at four o'clock in the afternoon? A guy named Mike Douglas. Y'all remember Mike Douglas? <sighs> <laughs> So, Dr. Robinson was on the Mike Douglas show, and he was, he was talking about this, this passage right here, that Jesus said, nobody can get to God other than through him. And this lady stood up and said, I don't believe in a God who's that narrow-minded. And Dr. Robinson said, ma'am, it doesn't matter what you believe about God. It matters what God believes about you. And so she didn't like that. So her retort was, um, she said, you can't tell me that God's not going to let me into heaven. I am a candy striper at the hospital for disabled children. And she went on this list, list of things that she did. He said, ma'am, let me tell you for sure. In your candy striper uniform, serving free meals to children with disabilities, if you don't find a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, you're going to die, bust hell wide open and be there forever. And the whole crowd gasped. That's just, that's just, ugh. That's not nice. That, that's not broad-minded. How can there only, Oprah, several years ago, same thing, same scenario. Somebody brought this very phrase up. And Oprah said, and you can Google it. Google, Oprah denies Jesus is the only way. And Oprah says, well, that's just ridiculous. There couldn't possibly only be one way to God. Just because that way works for you, it might not work for someone else. And you may find your way through this, and they may find their way through that. Oh, how sweet. Everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's going to make heaven. And it's just, as long as, you know, you, we're all just good people, we'll all hold hands and sing. That's not how it works. God owns heaven. He gets to decide who gets let in and not. And Jesus said, the only way you can get to the Father is through me. I've had people tell me, I don't believe that you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven because I'm going to heaven. And I don't believe in Jesus. And... You, the Bible says if anybody be ignorant, let them be ignorant. You can't argue with a fool or just, there's just no peace, the Scripture says. So this is what I tell people. If that's what you believe, then that's what you believe. But I can tell you this. You're not going to be going to the heaven that Jesus is in. 
Because the heaven that Jesus is in, he made the rules for. You're not going to spend eternity in the heaven with the God of the Bible because the heaven that exists as the place, the dwelling place of the God of the Bible plainly says that the only way you can get there is through Jesus Christ. So here's the, here's the truth that we need to understand. There's only one way to heaven. This is not a broad way. Jesus said the way to heaven is narrow, and few there be that find it. The way to hell is broad, and many people are on that road. So the big question is, do you know the way? Do you know the way to heaven? Now, here's the saddest reality I can give you, and we'll get out of here. There are people in this room that really know for sure, no doubt in their mind, Jesus is the only way to heaven. And they know if they don't have a life-changing, supernatural decision for God through His Son, Jesus Christ, that they're not going to go to heaven. But they're holding on to, I'm not ready. They're holding on to maybe one day. The Bible says you don't know what tomorrow holds. Don't play with this way. Jesus said you can't get there any other way except through me. That's the most narrow-minded statement any religion ever set forth. There's only one way. That way is through Jesus Christ. And I believe that most people in this room, saved or lost, deep down in your heart, you know the only way you can hope to have heaven as your home is through Jesus Christ. So if you know the way, why are you playing with it? If you know that Jesus is the only way to heaven, what are you waiting on to get your ticket punched? See, I had a pastor one time, he'd say all the time, I, I love it. He'd say, I'm, I, I, I'm prayed up, my ticket is paid up, and I'm ready to go up. See, the reality is everybody in this room is not prayed up. Everybody in this room hasn't accepted the payment so that their ticket could be paid up. But if you know the way, then you're ready to go up. People look for happiness in a lot of different ways. People look for fulfillment in a lot of different ways. You'll never have as much money as Solomon had. And you'll never be as smart as Solomon. The Bible says he's wealthier than everybody that ever lived, ever would live, smarter than everybody that lived, ever would live. And he tried everything. Thousands of women. Partying. Money, education, and at the end of it, he said, man, it just all amounts to nothing. I looked for all these different avenues to try to find happiness, and I couldn't find it because it can only be found in God. Some of you are looking for love in all the wrong places. Some of you, see, there, there's a very small percentage of people who are truly saved in any church, including ours. But the people who are truly saved in this church that truly love the Lord and have an ongoing relationship with God, they know what real happiness is. They know the way. Not, not just the, 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 the geographic way. They intimately are connected to that map, that life, that truth. They, they know this thing deep on the inside, and they could tell you if you'd bother to listen. It's better than whatever else you're waiting on. 
It's so much better when you get on the right way. If you're going in the wrong way, we were in Orlando yesterday. And my GPS ran me in a U-turn twice. And I'm like, well, that was effective. You know what happens if you run a U-turn twice? Going the same way you was going to begin with. What kind of map is this? I can't think of a time where you'd ever need to go and take a U-turn twice. But everybody needs to take a U-turn. Everybody needs to take a U-turn and get their life pointed in the right direction. Because if you want to end up in the right place, you got to take the right road to get there. See, I'm, I'm very familiar with how to get to Disney World. When Amber was our full-time nanny and she's just obsessed with Disney, and she convinced us that, you know, you're not a real Disney person unless you don't go there 10, 20, 50 times a year and have the whole park memorized. I got very familiar with how to get there. But there are other parks in Orlando that I'm not as familiar with. And I can't go the same way that I normally go to Disney if I'm trying to get to Universal. I'll end up at Disney and if I want to get to Universal, I'm going to have gone the wrong way. I'm done with this question. Where do you really want to go for eternity? If you think you're okay going to hell, then you surely will be there. And you'll find out it was a horrible decision that you should not have made. But if you want to get to the right place, you got to take the right road that leads you there. And there's only one road. There's only one way that will get you eternal life in heaven. And that way is Jesus Christ. He's the only way to God. Nothing else will get you there. It's not about intellect. It's not about morality. It's about do you know the right way? to get to God. Some of you know that you just need to ask God to save you and he'd do it. You know all, you know all the church answers. You've seen to other people. You've walked out, prayed a prayer, knew it didn't work for you because you weren't real in your heart. You weren't really ready. You were half-stepping. But you know deep down. And some of y'all, if you'd be honest right now, you'd say, yep, that's me. I, I know I'm not saved. I know exactly what I need to, know, need to do to get saved, and one day I will. You are counting on information that you do not possess. You don't know that you'll make it home today. And you don't know the sun will come up tomorrow. We have this false sense of security that we never should have. History is a great teacher, but people don't study history enough to learn. Do you know what happened at Pearl Harbor? When the majority of people that died on the Arizona, when, you know what they were doing? When, when, when they got hit, when that boat got hit, they were sleeping. There was no thought in their mind. See, America was not fully engaged in the war. 
And America it was in negotiation with Japan to end the whole thing. And Japan had already said, we're going to back off everything and we're going we're to continue in with peace talks. Then all of a sudden, uh, okie doke, boom, they attacked America at Pearl Harbor. Nobody that died that day saw that day coming. You say, well, that was then, this is now. We have anti-missile weapons now. Do you know there's a multitude of nations that have enough firepower that they could destroy us before I say amen at the end of the closing prayer today? If, if you think that we're not just minutes away from that crazy dude in Korea just, just trying to prove to Donald Trump that he's, he's more wilder than Donald Trump, you say, you trying to scare me, Pastor? No, I'm, try, I'm just trying to give you a realistic idea of what we should know from history. What if Kim Jong-un decide to destroy America? I said, I've been in the military. And you ask any military man or woman in this room, when they target America, what, what are the first targets that they're going to hit? The, the, the people have different ideas about where they're going to hit. Let me tell you where they're going to hit. They're going to hit Norfolk, Virginia. Jacksonville, Florida, and San Diego, California. Those are the hot zones. Those are where we have the majority of our sub nuclear sub-seeking planes that can detect the threat. They're going to take that out. They're going to take Jacksonville out first on this side of the world. Now what happens if that, Pastor, I don't like this line of thinking. It could happen. But it doesn't have to be a nuclear bomb. People die every day. My brother went out to get a gallon of milk on Christmas Eve 2001 on a motorcycle. Car pulled out in front of him. He did everything right. He was expert motorcycle driver, laid the bike down sideways, let it go, slid into it. The weight of the helmet snapped his head over, and he died instantly on Christmas Eve. He wasn't planning on that. He wasn't planning on that. People don't plan on heart attack. People don't plan on stroke. What am I saying? I'm telling you that you don't have a promise to wait. So if you have the wherewithal to understand that heaven is real and that Jesus is the only way, and if you know all you have to do is pray and ask God to save you and give your life to him in a real way, I'm urging you to do that now. Don't put off till tomorrow what you could do today because tomorrow is not promised. Give your heart to the Lord. Get your life right with God. When you go through this troubled world, your heart is going to be troubled. If you don't have God to help you, it's going to be beyond your ability to deal with it. As Christians, we have the Lord on our side. And I want you to go out and begin telling everybody about the real way to get to heaven. I want you to go out and make sure that your brothers, your sisters, your cousins, your nephews, your neighbors, your friends, and your family know that Jesus is the only way. He, he, he said it. Christianity is not an inclusive religion. It's an exclusive group of people that came through Jesus. 
Christianity is not a, a, a religion for everybody. Everybody's not going to come because some people think there's another way. But Jesus said he's the only way. So if you believe that and you're saved, you ought to thank God that the way was revealed to you. If you know that's true and you haven't come to him yet, you ought to come to him now. He wants to prepare a place for you. He wants you to be saved. Some of you are just holding out for no good reason. Worrying, well, what if, if I get saved, then what? Get saved and find out. And live it. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to pray with me to get saved. You can ask God to save you right where you are. And I hope that you will. If, you hear, if you're here and you're saved already and you know it for sure, study the Gospel of John with us this month. And learn about this man, Jesus, who's the only way to the Father. Pray with me. God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for revealing to us the way to have eternal life in heaven. God, I pray for every person in this room who's not truly born again. Lord, I pray that you would save them and let them know you for real. God, I pray for every true Christian in the room that you would motivate us to care more about you than the things of this world. We love you and we believe in you. That is our confession today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the AOCF Sound Doctrine Podcast. And visit us on the web at aocfnow.org. Your financial support for this ministry allows us to share the gospel around the world. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you would like to give a donation, please go to aocfnow.org. Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church. Loving God, loving people.